0: This season in the life of our church, we are on the front end of a new preaching series that we're calling Dear Theophilus, a study of the Gospel of Luke. Theophilus is the name of the individual to whom Luke writes here in this Gospel. Uh, Luke dedicates not only this book to his friend Theophilus, but part two of Luke's Gospel, which is better known as the Book of Acts. Now, as we work our way verse by verse through this gospel, we mustn't ever lose sight of the forest for the tree is here. We want to keep the reason that Luke wrote this book in view every time we open it. And that reason is found and spelled out in chapter 1, verse 4, where Luke says, That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught about Jesus. That's why he wrote this, that we may have that kind of certainty. Certainty about the life and teaching and suffering and death and burial and ascension, resurrection, and soon return of our Lord Jesus. Luke wrote this gospel for one reason that we may have certainty concerning all that Jesus did and taught. So, do you have certainty? He wanted Theophilus to have it. The word that Luke uses for certainty in chapter 1, verse 4 is actually a word he only uses one other time in his writings, and he uses it in Acts chapter 5, verse 23. And in that context, the word for certainty, it's translated in English as securely locked because it's speaking of a prison cell. So when Luke tells us that he's writing this gospel that we may have certainty concerning the things that Jesus taught, we want to be thinking serious certainty. Think of a massive wrought iron Roman prison cell door slamming closed and shutting, that sort of certainty. In the words of one commentator I read this past week, the idea behind certainty in Luke 1-4 that you may know is not that just you may know the things that have been taught, but that you may know something about them. They're locked down, secure, unshakable, solid, stable, immovable reality. That you may know the safety, the bolted-down security of what you've been taught And so these things are safe from being stolen. They're safe from being changed. They're safe from ceasing to be what they are or becoming unimportant or irrelevant. That's what we mean by certainty. So whether or not you regard the biblical testimony of Luke as an author to be certain is on one level beside the point. It is certain, Luke says. He just wants us to lay hold of that certainty. But given the uncertainties of this life, the instability of our culture, the fragility of your family, truth be told, the, uh, the weakness of our own minds and hearts, Luke is inviting us to build our entire lives on the works and words of Jesus. It's that unshakably secure. It reminds me of a story uh, that Ray Ortland, pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, likes to tell. Ray Ortland once wrote this. He said one of my seminary professors told about his father crossing the Susquehanna River one winter's day, and his dad had no idea how thick the ice was, and so there he was crawling along on the top of the river, just gingerly on all fours in the middle of the winter. And he hears some racket and some clatter behind him and he looks back and all of a sudden he sees a wagon being pulled with four horses and the rider is whipping them along at a pretty good pace and they're scooting right across the top of the ice. This guy was a local. The guy knew how thick the ice actually was. And Ray Ortland says this, too many Christians are like that man down on all fours, just barely creeping along, way too cautious, our trust in the Lord far too half-hearted. Friends, Luke is telling us that this gospel, this word and work of Jesus, is, it's like the ice out there on Harrison's Bay. There are SUVs driving on Harrison's Bay right now because they know how thick the ice is. So to tweak the metaphor just slightly, the word and work of Jesus is so certain we can build all of our lives on it. Our, our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus, our 2020 vision to see unbelievers baptized and uh, covenant members welcomed and reproducing leaders raised up and groups launched and a counseling center established and missionaries sent out and a church planted. We can build all of that on the word of Jesus. Correction, we can only build all of that on the word of Jesus, even the word of Jesus as a pre-teen. Our church's mission and vision demand absolute certainty about all that Jesus did and taught, even from age 12. Our church's mission and vision demand absolute certainty about all that Jesus did and taught, even from 12 years of age. i trusting you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Let's just start with the first of three points today. Like Jesus' parents, as we study Luke's gospel, we must learn to put away our preconceptions about family priorities. Like Jesus' parents, as we study Luke's gospel, we must learn to put away our preconceptions about family priorities. Our story begins in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, as Luke writes, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Okay, a little background here. So, in the ancient Jewish law, in the law of Moses, uh, men were summoned to Israel or summoned to Jerusalem three times a year to three different feasts. The Feast of the Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Pentecost. And by the time of the first century, all of these three feasts essentially had rolled into one uh, yearly pilgrimage, one observance, and that would have been the Feast of Passover. That's why verse 41 only speaks of one journey that this family took every year, not, not three. But you'll notice the text implies that all three, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus made the journey. Only Joseph was required by law to do this. This is something, it says something about the devotion of Mary, that she's there because not every wife would have been there. It says something about her piety. It also says something about the spiritual temperature of our Lord, that as a boy at the age of 12, he journeys with his parents. Now, from the trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem is about 80 miles. You could make it on foot in about three to four days if you went around uh, Samaria, which is what Jews normally did. So you could cover the distance in three to four days. In the celebration of Passover... As you may well know, it marked the Lord's redemption of the Hebrew people out of their bondage of slavery from Egypt. And so this was a celebration, and it was a a whole week of feasting and teaching and uh, fellowship. At the end of the week, they'd return home. So we pick up the reading in verses 43 to 45 where it says, And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Something to bear in mind as we consider the the situation of the story here in the context, um, it would have been quite common to make this journey among large groups of extended relatives. you wouldn't just go as a little family unit. This was a, a, a large family and likely friends and neighbors were uh, traveling together. When Jews traveled from their homes to Jerusalem, they did it in caravans and they did it mainly for safety. Uh, the roads between, for example, Nazareth and Jerusalem would have been fraught with um, opportunities to be robbed or to be, um, to be at the hand of a, a thief. And so tip, journeying like this made for a safer journey. That's the positive side of the ledger. The negative side of the ledger is that when you have a group this size, it is increasingly difficult for parents to keep up with their children, especially if your kid has a mind to slip away from you and isn't interested in coming home with you. If you've ever been to Disney World with extended family, you know how this works. Parents and aunts and uncles just chatting away, enjoying their time together, and eventually one aunt says to her Sister, I, where, where is Johnny? And the other one says, well, I thought he was with you. He's not with me. I thought he was with you. And panic begins to set in. They can't find him. You can imagine Mary's concern at this point. She's frantic. So they set back toward Jerusalem. And now in verses 46 to 48, we see how it all unfolds. Starting in verse 46, after a three days journey, they find him in the temple sitting among the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Isn't it just great? It closes the gap between us and Jesus, that he has a mother who said to him something along the lines of, Son, we have been worried, what? Sick about you. He heard that in Aramaic, whatever that sounds like. Jesus gets us better than we frequently imagine. So on one level, what she says in verse 48 is entirely reasonable. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. We have been worried sick about you. But notice the way that she frames her initial question. It's not just a question. It's an accusation. Verse 48 again. Son, why have you treated us so? New Testament scholar Daryl Bach recognized authority on the Gospel of Luke in this world. He says that this is the language of complaint. There's no way to hide it. She's filing a complaint. It's an accusation. Who's she accusing? She's accusing Jesus. She's accusing Jesus of what, precisely? If you think about it, it's pretty plain. Jesus is being accused here of bending, if not breaking, the fifth commandment. What's the fifth commandment? Exodus 20, verse 12 honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you honor your father and mother the question that Mary serves up to Jesus here in verse 48 son why have you treated us so is also a charge it's it's an allegation jesus mary alleges appears to be violating the fifth commandment she believes that she and joseph have been dishonored Somewhat publicly by their son. Have they? Well, Jesus' answer says it all. And let's mark it well. This is the first time Jesus opens his mouth in the Gospel of Luke. It won't be the last. But these are the first recorded words in canonical scripture. These are the first words that the world knows that Jesus spoke. Now, our church's mission and vision demand absolute certainty about all that Jesus said and taught, and that's even from 12 years years of age. So here we are ready to listen to the first recorded words of Jesus in the Bible. Verse 49, And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Has Jesus dishonored his parents? No, he has not. In fact, he has honored them. And not only that, But Jesus has also honored his parent, capital P. It's right here in this moment, in the middle of the Q&A that he's having among the teachers of the Jewish law that Mary begins to experience, perhaps for the very first time, what Simeon prophesies is is going to happen to her. Up in chapter 2, verse 35, old Simeon tells her, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. What does that mean it means that as her son matures it is going to cause her in one sense increasing and exquisite pain it's like a sword thrusting through her own soul as the song we hear at christmas time so elegantly puts it mary did you know that the child that you've delivered will soon deliver you Mary, did you know? Well, here in verse 49, Jesus' parents begin to learn that if they are going to honor God with their lives, they are going to have to put aside some preconceptions they have about how family priorities are going to work. Is Jesus here guilty of breaking the fifth commandment? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, Jesus is here keeping the first commandment. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, including family, including parents. You say that's not a fair application of this first commandment, but I I think it is. In fact, it's not too strong to say that this is a theme in the gospel of Luke routinely. Later on in Jesus' ministry, uh, a would-be disciple has this interaction with Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verses 59 to 62, to one person he said, follow me, But, the person replied, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That is shockingly unsentimental to say the least. You hear it? Jesus is talking about misplaced family priorities. And what's more important, family obligations are following Jesus. Following Jesus. Luke chapter 11, verses 27 to 28, we read, As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said to her, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and do it. You hear him? Or Luke 14, 26. He puts this manner about as sharply and as pointedly as he possibly can. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So much for family values. How do we apply this in our context? Well, before we look at the practical application, let's look at the theological point that sets this up, and that would be this. No one, and that would be no one, comes in between the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. No one. This text is the first evidence, though far from the last, in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus' allegiance to God is light years beyond his allegiance to the relationship that he has with his parents, with his brothers or sisters or disciples or those whom he's going to save or the nation of Israel altogether. As a matter of fact, it is Jesus' unparalleled devotion to His Father that secures His salvation for anyone who would turn from their sins and put their faith in Him. The second depends upon the first. No one else's will for Jesus comes between Him and His Father. Not even Jesus' own will for Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He proved it. Luke chapter 22, verse 42 says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And because of that, Jesus is able to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin to you and me. Have you received that offer, that sacrifice for sin? Today. If you know Jesus, this Jesus who denied everyone so that he wouldn't deny his Father. If you turn from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus today by grace through faith alone, this magnificent Jesus can be yours. The gospel is not behave, it's believe. Believe in Jesus. Well, that's the theological point. What's the practical application of this? Well, let's state the principle. Like Jesus' parents, as we study Luke's gospel, we must learn to put away our preconceptions about family priorities. We can ask it this way. Does your family routine and all of its activities and its commitment, does it tend to erect a barrier between you and your family and the local church, for example? Sunday morning worship gatherings, the Sunday school hour, commitment to community group participation, connecting with this church body on Wednesday evenings? Or more basically, how does your family routine make space for God in your home through the rhythms that you already have in place? Personal devotions, family worship, family activity. Evangelism with folks on your list of five, using your home for hospitality for the sake of the mission. Or we can flip the question around from conviction and and do some encouragement. I trust a number of you in the conditions of your families, particularly your extended families. I would guess your walk with the Lord has cost you something in terms of relational family connection. Does your love for Christ come so clearly before your family commitment that it has tended to create a rift in the family dynamic? Maybe at Thanksgiving dinner? Christmas or Easter for many of you it has and I think you can take heart here in a text like this because it reminds you that you're real Jesus knew what it was like to put his father first some of you who have experienced the wonderful disruption of the gospel into your lives hear consolation in a passage like this and in passages like this and you should On the other hand, some of us who who regularly place family activities above the Lord and above his church ought to feel a fair amount of conviction at this point about priorities. Like Jesus' parents, as we study Luke's gospel, we must learn to put away our preconceptions about family priorities and allow him to set our priorities. Now, we have two more points, but as you can see, we're nearly at the end of the text. These two are just really applications that flow from the main point of the, the sermon, so Here's the second point. Like Jesus' parents, we are to, as we study the gospel of Luke, we must learn to be prepared to be puzzled at his teaching. <laughs> Prepare to be puzzled at his teaching. Let's look at the response of Jesus' parents in verse 50. So Jesus is just finished saying, Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? So we read these words in verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Now, the second half of verse fifty-one is stunning, and we'll give, give almost no time to it this morning in favor of something else. I mean, he says, "It says it when, he went down with when he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them." It is a clear indication that he is not of a mind to usurp the authority of his parents. That's not his design here. He's not. He's not in a place where he wants to dishonor them. Rather, he desires to submit to them and come underneath their appropriate authority over him. It says volumes about the humility of our Lord. He was holding the universe together by the word of his power, and he came underneath their authority and went back to Nazareth. But let's take a look at verse 50, where it says, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now, this too is a significant theme In Luke's gospel. I just want to introduce some some highlights that will be played throughout the gospel of Luke as we hear the music of this gospel. Jesus says something and his listeners don't get it. It happens over and over again, not just with mom and dad. In Luke chapter 8, verse 10, we're told that for many of his listeners, the words of Christ are like those who see but don't see They hear, but they don't understand. Even his disciples are like this from time to time. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 44 to 45. Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But it says they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. That is really complicated. It'll be a few months before we get to Luke chapter 9, but let's think through this a little bit. Two items worthy of note here. It's not just misbelievers, uh, unbelievers who misconstrue the teaching of Jesus. It's believers. It's those of us who mean well, and we're trying to follow Jesus, and we're doing the best to, to learn what he says. We get this upside down and backwards. And furthermore, it's not just disciples who are involved in the misunderstanding. It's God himself. Luke 9.45 contains a verb that's in what we sometimes call a divine passive. In other words, there's an actor, capital A, actor, that's behind this activity of not understanding here, and the actor is God. Listen to it again, Luke 9.45. But they did not understand this saying... And it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. Now there's other times in Luke's gospel when it's clear one sort of person understands Jesus' teaching and another doesn't. And what makes the difference in each case is both the sovereignty of God, yes, but also their own character, what they're like on the inside. So we hear Jesus say in Luke 10:21, "I thank you, Father." Lord of heaven and earth, that you have, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. For yes, such was your gracious will. So once again, we have God's sovereignty, God's pleasure in concealing teachings of Christ from some and revealing them to others. That's true. But in this situation, as we said, there's also the inner life of the person. There's the character of this person. Your character is, makes a massive impact on what your convictions are. They go hand in hand, lockstep. Childlike faith allows a person to receive what Jesus is saying. Finally, in one of the last things we encounter in Luke's gospel, all the way in the end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24, 45, we read, then he, that's Jesus, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now that is fantastic. That's really good news. Really good news. Jesus has the ability to open our minds to understand the Scriptures, to understand His Word. This ought to encourage us. As I was telling the elders before we um, came in here back on Monday, this passage, I'd read it a thousand times. It was just locked for me. I didn't know what I was going to say on it. And as the week progressed, and as the desperation grew, and as the prayers got hotter, and as I read some things began to happen. Now back to our text at hand. Jesus has just proclaimed this stunning truth about his relationship with God as his father and the temple as his father's house. And he proclaims that to his parents and they just don't get it. So here's how I want to apply it. If you ever find yourself reading scripture, particularly the words of Christ, and you begin to stumble over them, and you begin to think to yourself, hmm, I, I just don't get this. I don't know what he's, he's saying here. Number one, you're in good company. Because that appears to happen to just about everybody in the Gospel of Luke. Everybody. And number two, secondly, don't despair because God is sovereign over even over especially over what we don't know and he loves to answer the prayer of a desperate person in front of the words of his son or in the scriptures more broadly that's why we pray for the gift of illumination while we preach and teach and counsel in community groups and in the words of Luke 24:45 that Jesus would open our minds Dull as we are, dim as we are, to understand the scriptures. So don't be disappointed if you ever stumble over the teachings of Jesus. Rather, be concerned if you never stumble over the teachings of Jesus. It's the person who approaches the words of the Savior with sort of this cocksure, sort of cavalier, I got this, sort of approach. That's the person you need to worry about. Um, think about the rich young ruler in Luke 18:21. Jesus names five of the Ten Commandments and the rich young ruler, who ought to have been decimated at this point, that's why Jesus listed five commandments, straightens up, puffs out his chest and says, all these I've kept from my youth. Jesus says, really? Really? Hmm. Jesus' teachings aren't there to pat us on the back so much as to swat us on the backside, right? In a holy way. They're not there to get us off the hook. They're to show us the hook that we're already on, right? One of my favorite authors once wrote this: "We must be troubled by biblical affirmations if we ever attend, intend to be bettered by them." We mu- here's a great phrase. This is John Piper. We must form the habit of being systematically disturbed by things that, at a first glance, don't make sense. I love that. And you have to form it as a habit form a habit of being systematically disturbed. This doesn't always come to us naturally. Ask questions. Pester a passage with questions and see if you're not disturbed. Sometimes we have to work at it, which leads us to our second and final application. So let's just sum up this point and we'll go there. Like Jesus' parents, as we study the gospel of Luke, we must learn to prepare to be puzzled at his teaching. Final point. Like Jesus' parents, as we study the Gospel of Luke, we must learn to press into his words and ponder them deeply. And I should have added, and then you'll make progress, because that's what I mean. Like Jesus' parents, as we study the Gospel of Luke, we must press into his words and ponder them deeply, and then only then will you begin to make progress. Now, lest we think Mary has nothing but a negative example for us here. She's not just just a, a liability in this text. She's an asset in this text. Mary is an extraordinary example for us, and we need to finish it because in the second half of verse 51, she points the way ahead for us. For context, I'm going to read verses 50 to 52. And they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. So let's key in on that second sentence, second to last sentence found in the back half of verse 51. Now recall, they just don't understand what he's talking about. Verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And notice that verse 51 does not say, and his mother tossed out everything she didn't understand in the exchange with her son and moved on in a huff. Verse 51 does not say that. Rather, it says, and his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart. Evidently, this is not something new for Mary. This is a way of life for Mary. Remember back in chapter 2, Verse 19, we read in in the visit of the shepherds. This was Christmas Day when Pastor Seth was preaching. But Mary treasured up all of these things, pondering them in her heart. It's almost the exact same phrase, 12 years earlier. This is how this woman operates with reference to God and to spiritual things and to prophecy and to the words of her son. When she doesn't un- clearly understand all of the implications about her son and his teaching, this is what she does. Mary doesn't run away from what she doesn't understand about Jesus. She doesn't run away. She presses into what she doesn't understand about Jesus. That's a good model for us. It's the perfect complement to point to, actually. On the one hand, when we encounter the words of Jesus, Expect complication. Expect complication. If you don't hit complication, you're, you're not even at step one. On the other hand, when we encounter the words of Jesus, respond with meditation. Meditation. That's what Mary is doing here. Now Jesus himself commends this to us in Luke chapter 8, verse 15, in, the so, in this uh, parable of the sower and the soils. In Luke 8:15, it's the good soil that bears fruit in this parable. They are Stands for those who, in the words of Jesus, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. That's what Mary's doing here with the words of Jesus. She does not know what to make of what Jesus has just said, but she's going to make something of it. She's not pulling away, she's pressing in. And in the words of Jesus, she hears his word and holds it fast in an honest and good heart, pondering, wondering, pressing in, and over time, she bears fruit. You might ask the question, where did Luke ever hear this story? I mean, Luke is a second-generation Christian. You know where I think he got this story? Mary. She got it. She's not pulling away. She's pressing in. She bears fruit. The question is, do you? Do I? Is that what we do with the word of God? Does the image of the blessed man in Psalm 1 capture you the way that it captures me? Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Holding it close. Treasuring it up in his heart. The word meditate here doesn't mean sit cross-legged on the floor with an empty mind. <laughs> doesn't mean that. We need to disabuse ourselves of that notion of that's what we think we mean. That is, that is Far Eastern meditation. This is ancient Near Eastern meditation. This is Hebrew meditation. It's not hit flush on your brain. It's fill up your brain with the Bible. This is means put your face into the text of scripture and fill your mind with the words of Christ. There's only a few other times in the Old Testament other than Psalm 1 verse 2 where the word for meditate is used and one of those times it's used in Isaiah 31 4 and it's used of a young lion growling over his prey. What sound does a young lion make when he's got dinner between his paws? right <laughs> hmm is the bible dinner for you or not except instead of a you know a hunger hungry lion growling over his prey right the christian is the growling individual over the word of god do you do that do you meditate on scripture i don't mean do you read scripture that's not what i'm asking i'm asking do you salivate over scripture that's what mary's doing here because it's not polite for women to salivate so she's pondering up things in her heart change the metaphor if you don't understand a passage at first blush then grab it like Jacob wrestling with the angel of old and do not let it go until it blesses you. If you're bothered by it, that's a great start. Hang on to it and wrestle it to the ground until God breaks it open for you later that day. And take God's word for it. If you pursue Him in this way, He will give you understanding. 2 Timothy 2, 7 promises, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Everything. That's encouraging. In the words of Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water yielding fruit in season whose leaf does not wither. God wants you to be that kind of fruitful person in the word as you follow Jesus. So like Jesus' parents, as we study Luke's gospel, we must learn to press into his words, ponder them deeply, and they will break wide open for us. They will. So our church's mission and vision demand absolute certainty about all that Jesus did and taught, even from 12 years of age. Like Jesus' parents, as we study the gospel of Luke, we need to first put away our preconceptions about family priorities. Second, we need to prepare to be puzzled at his teaching. And third, press into his words and ponder them deeply. Our mission and our vision require that we have an unshakable hold of the words of our Savior. We have to. The Great Commission itself has obedience woven right into the words of Jesus, right into the fabric of it. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. And we cannot hope to obey that which we do not understand. So God is calling us today to build our lives afresh on the rock of his word. May we dive deeply into the scriptures in our personal devotions and in our family worship time and in our community groups and in our biblical counseling ministries. This is a reminder too that if you have yet to check out the 9 a.m. Mount Free U class that Guy Runkle is teaching, I strongly recommend you take a look at it Our own Guy Runkle, student at Central Baptist Theological Seminary, is teaching a class down in our library called How to Read the Bible, an Introduction to Bible Study. And so in this class, we are learning what the Bible meant, what the Bible means, how the Bible speaks, and much, much more. We're still at the beginning of that semester, so there's plenty of time to dive in and plenty of room down there in the the library for you. Consider how the Lord might be leading you today, this season, to strengthen your grip on his word. We want to have a tight hold on it as we follow him into the rest of this gospel. Right now, let's pray.